Welcome to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the only podcast you will ever need for all of your oncology intrigue. As always, I'm joined by my charismatic, ridiculously irresistible co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. This is not a love podcast, but it sounds like that. Mikey, how are you today? Yes, especially with your sultry tones, Josh. This is sounding all very late night radio, but I'm good. Thank you for asking. Wonderful. And something we haven't done on our podcast before is a bit of a shout out to one of our listeners who left us a lovely review. It's Kirsty Rosmalin, and forgive me if I have not pronounced your name correctly. She's an oncology specialist trainee from Queensland, Australia. We love doing this and we love hearing from our listeners. So please send us an email, leave us a review, let us know what you want to hear. We're always happy to present it. Not a word of a lie. It truly makes our day when we hear from you guys. And thank you, Christy, for your delightful email. And we hope that we can give more tidbits and more insights into oncology for our listeners. So you keep them coming and we'll keep on doing this nonsense. I know you said not to do this, but I think she's an Australian gold medalist. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's start the episode. Today is our second episode in our epic journey into non-EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. EGFR mutations and the treatment thereof get all of the press, they get all of the accolades, they get all of the nominations for the Emmys, to use a topical reference, Uh, but there are so many other mutations that are worthy of note. We've previously talked about ALK mutations, which is an area of ongoing improvement in clinical outcomes. But today, Josh and I are going to talk about two separate mutations, KRAS G12C, so not just a mutation, but a very specific subtype, as well as the very rare ROS1 mutation. But let's start, Josh, with the KRAS G12C mutation, a new kid on the block, but not in the way that Uh, many would think. It is well known to be a common mutation, but until recently, we haven't been able to do much about it. I think that's a summary, really. There's been no (laughs) targetable agents for this in many years, and it's been either immuno and a combination of chemotherapy or chemotherapy alone. Would you say that's right? I would. I would also sort of equate it to the BRAF mutation in colorectal cancer. We've known about KRAS mutations in non-small cell lung cancer for quite a while. But until now, or until recently, there's not been been much we can do about them. Docetaxel, as Josh mentioned, is the treatment of choice after progression on first-line chemoimmunotherapy until the development of sotorasib or sotorasib. Your mileage may vary on how that's pronounced. But activating mutations of KRAS are present in up to 39% of non-small cell lung cancers, and KRAS G12C specifically is present in up to 16%. You compare that to ALK and ROS1, Josh, that's, that's much, much more common. So having a targeted agent against this mutation is, is a huge step. Why don't you tell us about Sotorasib and the code break study? I'm still not sure how to pronounce this drug. Well, I've heard it <laughs> I've heard it both ways, but I think the people who 
uh, have lots of Twitter followers and lots of publications tend to pron- pronounce it uh, soda acid. That's it. And we should always listen to everything that's on Twitter. <laughs> or or threads, which uh, Josh has just made an account for us, Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind on threads. So you should follow us there as well if you have an allergy to Elon Musk. That's it, which we all do. Moving on to the trial. This is the code break 200 trial. It's a bit like the Mission Impossible franchise i feel it's going to be we're going to see this lots and lots maybe either way it is a randomized multi-center open label phase three trial so patients that were included were kras g12c they had to have advanced non-small cell lung cancer this is in the second line so they would have progressed after a platinum-based chemotherapy with a pd1 or pdl1 inhibitor there was regulatory feedback and they changed the sample size to 330 patients originally from about 600 and after that they also allowed crossover from the docetaxel arm to the sotorasib or sotorasib arm upon confirmation of radiographic progression so the inclusion criteria is as expected mikey over 18 histologically or cytologically confirmed documentation of this kind of cancer an ecog of zero to one and treated stable brain mets were eligible this is always the first issue right treated stable brain mets there is probably a big need for this type of cancer which does make a beeline for the brain to actually get urgent treatment and so a real world exposure to KRAS inhibitor would be worthwhile to know how these patients manage Um, and I think that's the same as the ELK trials and quite a number of the other trials they try to contain one of the biggest variables that we see in clinical practice so people who are excluded mikey are those that have symptomatic brain mets new or progressing untreated brain mets and non-kras g12c oncogenic driver mutation so if you've got an egfr and elk mutation you're out um, and if you've had a prior treatment with a kras g12c so you randomize one to one and michael has his hand up yes uh dr fernando the, the other thing with the uh, non-KRAS G12C, you mentioned EGFR and ALK, uh, which you can, I believe you can get co-mutations with EGFR or ALK. It's not like those two where they are mutually exclusive. But also G12C is obviously, as we implied in the introduction, not the only KRAS mutation. So if you have a, a G12A or a G12V or a G12D or even a non-G12-based mutation, then there's no evidence for sotorasib in this trial. So it's, it is quite a narrow spectrum. It is. And it also took 10 years for them to go from finding this target to actually being able to de- develop a drug that somewhat works. So yeah, the- we need we need pan-KRAS inhibitors here. Yes, a bit like lorlatinib for ELK. When we look at the endpoints, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival and secondary, there's a plethora overall survival, overall response rate, patient reported outcomes. With the demographics, everyone was over the age of 60 or mostly. Males predominated, mostly Caucasian, mostly reformed smokers or current smokers, which I found really interesting. So over 80 to 90% were 
smokers or had a history of smoking with this mutation, which was really interesting. And 30% of the patients had brain nets. There was also a mix of PD-1 expression. When we look at the results, Mikey, they were recruited from 2020 to 2021. 345 patients were enrolled, equal in both arms. The median study follow-up was about 17 months. And median duration of treatment was 19.9 weeks with sotorasib up to 101 weeks. So it does very much work in certain cases versus 12 weeks in the docetaxel arm. At the end of the follow-up time period, 13% of patients remained on sotorasib and 4% remained on docetaxel. About a quarter of patients on the docetaxel arm crossed over, walked to the other side of the plank and decided sotorasib was for them. And I think they probably made the right choice. It's always the case with these crossovers, as you do wonder how much, particularly the overall survival data, which I think you're just about to get to, Josh, is going to be affected by the crossover, because you are artificially extending, not artificially extending, but you are extending these patients' lives beyond what they would have gotten if they hadn't been on the trial. That's it. That's that's one of my big questions. The primary endpoint was met with a hazard ratio of 0.66, so about 34% more effective than that of the standard of care, with the median progression-free survival of 5.6 months in the sotorasib arm versus 4.5 months in the docetaxel arm. At the 12-month mark, progression-free survival was 24.8% in the sotorasib and 10.1% in the docetaxel, which are pretty good numbers. This was consistent across subgroups, including ECOG performance status, demographics, prior lines of therapy, PD-1 expression, and CNS involvement. They also did a PFS-2, Mikey, and it was 9.6 months in the sotorasib and 7.6 months in the docetaxel. These aren't huge numbers. I think that's the first thing to say. But again, coming back to the crossover question, if the second PFS is for sotorasib, then that might be that might even the playing field out a bit, no? Well, probably would if a quarter of patients jumped to the docetaxel. I guess you also have to look at the statistical analysis and the intention to treat. Did they only include patients that were on single arm? It, 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 you'd have to have a look at how they kind of structured that part. But I suspect maybe the docetaxel arm was elongated a little bit because of that crossover. Hmm. Particularly the PFS2. Particularly. Most of the subgroups, you saw similar kind of benefit, which was good. And I'm just going to cross over from that because I think the important discussion points of this trial doesn't so much lie in the PFS as it does in the overall survival. So it was interesting. In the overall survival, there was no statistical significance between the arms. What With a hazard ratio of 1.01 and a p-value of 0.53. With a median overall survival of 10.6 months in sotorasib, versus 11.3 months in the docetaxel arm. And I'm looking at the Kaplan-Meier curves here, Josh, and they really do overlie each other, although it does appear that the docetaxel group lags behind initially before sort of drawing even like a, a horse in a race getting a second wind, but maybe that is the point at which crossover starts to play a part. It is sort of at the four and a half to six month mark that the docetaxel survival curve starts to draw back towards it. Again, this is 
probably reading way too much into it. But We do love Kaplan Meyer curves here. And it's interesting you say that, Mikey, because if you look at the other secondary endpoints, and I'm specifically looking at the objective response rate or overall response rate was 29.1% versus 13.2% favoring sotorasib. And the disease control rate was 82.5 versus 60% in those who responded. And it was a faster time to response as well. So sotorasib was 1.4 versus 2.8 months in the chemotherapy and had a longer duration of response by about two months, 8.6 versus 6.8 as well. So all of these numbers really do favor the sotorasib arm, but it seems that overall survival, whether it's a mix of resistance mechanisms, crossover, study design it's just a little bit curious that they didn't get that overall survival the second question i have with this is they've already been pre-treated so have the mutations moved on from the basic you know you you irreversibly inhibit the g kras g12c profile and then you're you're done you're dandy for a couple of years and maybe it's already moved on from that and you don't get that duration of response so we'll have to see earlier phase studies to look and see if we get an overall survival things that sort of favor sotorasib as well are toxicities so treatment related adverse events was higher in docetaxel 40 versus 33 percent and overall adverse events was 86 versus 70 percent worse in the docetaxel arm sotorasib you saw more diarrhea uh, hepatotoxicity and one fa- case of fatal interstitial lung disease and in the docetaxel arm mikey the classic neutropenia fatigue febrile neutropenia dose interruption was more in the sotorasib but dose continuation and dose reduction was higher in the docetaxel arm quality of life something i'm a huge advocate of and as we throw more and more money and more and more research into this Uh, I always want to know because I think that's something we need to discuss. And it showed clinically meaningful differences in the global health status with a hazard ratio of 0.69, improved physical functioning and cancer-related symptoms of dyspnea and cough. And the discussion points, which I think is probably the more important thing of this trial, is that overall it reached most of its endpoints apart from overall survival but there are differences when you look at code break 200 versus 100 which was the earliest study for this especially in the median progression free survival where there was about a month and a half difference favoring the earlier study there was also difference in overall survival which was about two months difference and objective response rate was higher in the earliest study maybe it's a larger study maybe it's different populations of being American versus European. And maybe there's more brain mets in the study. So it's very difficult to say. I think the final notes, this is definitely an option for patients. I think irrespective of the overall survival data, you have to look at the quality of life component and having a tablet versus having an effusion every three weeks. Because most of my patients who get docetaxel don't last 12 months on docetaxel they stop earlier because of side effects and i'm not i'm not butchering the drug it has its place and it's important but if i'm going to reduce toxicity and improve quality of life as a second line setting i think a tablet i'd be very happy to use uh josh you're going all political on me with uh, your assurances of not butchering docetaxel one question one question i did have uh, the practice at your centre is, ha- do you continue docetaxel in the second line setting? 
uh, indefinitely or do you have a cutoff uh, for the number of cycles? Yeah, it's been a while since I've done lung. <laughs> I think that's my <laughs> that's my first answer. I well, think it also depends. Some some people do stop, some people do continue. But I also hmm. think it's how is the cancer responding? You know, is it stable? Can you give them an actual break and then restart it? I don't think it's as simple as you know, stopping the drug versus continuing. There's also the patient preferences and the cumulative toxicities you get with docetaxel. Absolutely. It's definitely not a drug that most people would be able to handle ongoing. The reason I ask, though, is because the FAQ information, this is for our overseas listeners, this is the New South Wales Health uh, Initiative that protocolizes a lot of our chemotherapy regimens, how they're given pre-meds. It's a very useful resource. For docetaxel in the lung cancer setting, they say the number of cycles is four unless otherwise indicated. Now, if you have a patient who's tolerated four cycles of docetaxel and their initial uh, CT scan demonstrates a good response, there would be room to continue. But the flip side of what you're saying, and I completely agree with everything you've said with regards to quality of life, avoiding hematological toxicity, we know that docetaxel has a lot of side effects, um, is that if there is, if the standard practice at your center is basically to give four cycles of docetaxel and then stop, then there will be a period of surveillance of observation where patients aren't getting treatment and yes it might be difficult for patients to get through those four cycles of docetaxel but at the same time if you are one of the 12 percent of people who have diarrhea or the eight uh, percent or whatever it was of patients who have um, alt derangement then having a having an end date uh, for your treatment might be uh, uh, more mentally tolerable as it were Having said that, if I was confronted with uh, a patient with this uh, situation, confronted's exactly the wrong word. I do apologize for that. If I if if I was um, treating a patient with a KRAS G12C mutation and there was the option of sodoracib or uh, docetaxel, I too would choose sodoracib every time because I do think that the benefits even if you're assuming that the overall survival is the same, the benefits do go beyond overall survival with sodoracib over docetaxel. And my final point is that if there's a trial option for patients who've progressed on, let's say, sotoracib and your PD-1 inhibitors, you'd go for the trial option before starting any chemotherapy. Yeah, of course, depending on what the trial actually is. <laughs> yes, that too. But we'll move on to ROS1, <laughs> if that's okay with you. Uh, uh, it's very okay with me, Josh. Guys, I've been given permission. All right, so <laughs> what am I doing? Make it so. <laughs> Make it so. So the background of the ROS1 is that it's a genetic rearrangement in the tyrosine kinase CROS proto-oncogene 1, and it can result in an active fusion. ROS1 fusion is found in about 1% to 2% of non-small cell lung cancers, and up to 40% of patients with ROS1 have CNS METs at diagnosis. So that's more similar to ELK than it is to KRAS. There are features, predominantly adenocarcinoma, younger age, a non-smoker, and prognosis with chemotherapy and immunotherapy is about 24 months at best. So first-line treatment has been crizotinib but has poor CNS penetration. And the objective response rate was 72%, duration of response 25 months, median progression-free survival of 19.2 months, and median overall survival of 51 months. This is no slouch. 
that almost 50% of patients receiving crizotinib experience first progression solely in CNS. Here comes some other potential drugs. So there's entrectinib. It's a TKI of the tropomyosin receptor kinase CROS oncogene 1 and ELK inhibitor. There are three studies looking at this. So it's the ELK372001, the START-RK1, and the START-RK2. All of these have looked at safety, efficacy of this medication, and the NTRAC mutation solid tumors. Entrectinib is a potent inhibitor of ROS1 and specifically designed to cross the blood-brain barrier with increased CNS activity. There's no seminal clinical trials of either agent, but there was the trial called the Profile 1001, and this was a Phase 1 open-label study looking at crizotinib, and it was a single-arm Phase 2 study of crizotinib enrolling 127 East Asian patients. Michael, were there no big studies looking at entrectinib? The ALK372, the start, and I love your summary, Josh. I will make one correction that the START-RK studies are actually pronounced Star Trek. That's why I said make it so to begin with. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to redo that. Three studies, the ELK372001, the Star Trek 1, and the Star Trek 2 oncologists and nerds have explored safety and efficacy of entrectinib in the ROS1 space and the NTRAC mutated solid tumor space. There were no seminal clinical trials of either agent. And here at my center, we actually do use entrectinib a little bit. We use it through the most sequencing, which is sort of a next generation platform in Australia, where people get a whole host of genetic alterations and they're sort of like pan mutations. But Mikey, do you want to talk to us about this meta-analysis. Absolutely. So this is the problem. Here's the problem, Josh. <laughs> with uh, That's not a good way to start. Yes, uh, it never is. But with, with ROS1, it's one of those mutations where it is probably more common than we recognize, but it is still an incredibly rare mutation. As you said, one to 2% of non-small cell lung cancers is the going rate. As a result, these patients are hard to find and they are hard to recruit to clinical studies. So there are no huge phase three studies like Codebreak 200 that we just heard from Josh for agents in the ROS1 space. So as a result, we've had to get a little bit creative. Now, as Josh mentioned, there are three studies, the ALK372001, Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 2 uh, studies. These are the the first two of these studies are phase one studies and Star Trek II was a phase two study. It's important to note that Star Trek II was a bit of a basket study that's different to a basket case that enrolled patients that did not necessarily have ROS1 mutated non-small cell lung cancer because entrectinib, as the name suggests, is also an inhibitor of the entrec gene mutation. So it can also be used in patients with, with targetable entrec mutations. In Victoria, there is a facility to, to test for NTREC mutations, particularly in thyroid cancer. So that's where the majority of my experience with entrectinib comes in as we look for these in thyroid cancer. However, when it comes to getting a bit creative, this is what I mean. The authors behind this study, which is a, an integrative analysis, uh, have decided to combine the results, the data of these three prospective studies 
to see if entrectinib demonstrated a superior efficacy and safety to crizotinib in a larger cohort with a longer follow-up. There will be there is an issue with that sentence, and I will come to it in a moment. And our uh, more eagle-eared listeners, as we say, might pick it before the conclusion. But in total, from three studies, and this shows the rarity, Josh, they were able to cobble together 161 patients, and 145 of these came from Star Trek II. The larger study had the most patients. That's not really um, a news flash, but it is important to note that we're talking about probably 80% of the patients in this analysis came from one study, which kind of might blunt the whole integrative analysis angle. Was this the Enterprise or was it some other vehicle? No, it was Deep Space Nine. Deep Space, <laughs> of course. I, I don't know much about Star Trek, so I shouldn't challenge me, you. Me neither, me neither. Um, so all patients uh, in the analysis had received at least one dose of entrectinib at 600 milligrams daily. And the inclusion criteria... Patient, it's the usual stuff. Patients are greater than 18 years old, had to have a locally advanced or metastatic non-spill cell lung cancer that harbored a ROS1 gene fusion. As an important clinical note, ROS1 gene fusions are identified via FISH or certain next-generation sequencing assays. And sometimes you do have to have a confirmatory FISH test if your standard uh, NGS has uncovered a potential ROS1. So it's, it's sort of like the HER2 thing where you can have uh, HER2 IHC, which is positive, but you need to do the ish to confirm the presence or absence definitively. Patients were included if they were enrolled before October 31st, 2018, so they could have a prolonged uh, follow-up or unless they or unless they had suffered an event, progressed, died before the six-month marker. They also had to have measurable disease. Patients received entrectinib until documented radiographic progression, toxicity, or withdrawal consent. This is one of those studies where they could also continue entrectinib if the investigator decided that the patient derived clinical benefit. And this is something that I do like in clinical studies because it mirrors what we do in the real world. The co-primary endpoints were overall response rate and duration of response. And the secondary endpoints were PFS, OS, safety, and as, as Josh mentioned, a significant proportion of patients with ROS1 mutant non-small cell lung cancer have CNS disease. And so they look specifically at the overall response rate and the duration of response and the progression-free survival for patients with CNS mets. In terms of demographics, we don't normally go on too much... Uh, we don't normally go into too much detail with this. However, it is quite illustrative of the sort of patients who have ROS1 mutations in their lung cancer. So the median age was 54. Almost two thirds of patients were female. 45% were from Asian backgrounds and 44% were from white, Caucasian backgrounds. Majority were ECOG 0 to 1. Over 60% were never smokers and 97.5% were no. 97.5% of patients had adenocarcinoma as a histology. The majority of the remainder had adenosquamous, some sort of combination that had an adenocarcinoma component. The number of prior lines of systemic therapy was roughly evenly spread between 0, 1, and greater than or equal to 2, so a, a third of these patients are quite heavily pretreated. A third of patients did have CNS metastases, which, again, roughly correlates with the incidence of CNS mets in the community, and there was an even split between patients who had and had not had prior brain radiotherapy. 
There are a number of different fusions of ROS1, and I won't go into all of them because I don't pretend to understand all of them, but the most common was the CD74 fusion, which was present in about 43%, and that is by far the most common fusion in the community. So the results, and fair warning, this does get a little bit confusing. So to start with, we are talking about the overall population, so not necessarily the patients with CNS mets. We will focus on them later. The median duration of follow-up was 15.8 months, and the median duration of treatment was 10.7 months. The confirmed objective response rate was 67.1%. Now, in comparison to the very small studies of crizotinib, this is sort of numerically similar. The overall response rate in the uh, little data we have for crizotinib is about 72%. However, the rates of complete response and partial response as opposed to stable disease were numerically higher in entrectinib. The responses also occurred early, which is something that is critical for patients with CNS METs. The median time to response was 0.95 months. Josh, I don't know how many days or weeks that is, but it's less than a month. If you have a patient with CNS metastases, you obviously need a response very quickly because if those CNS METs grow, they're going to deteriorate regardless of what the rest of their disease is doing. So the fact that you have a quick response, and incidentally, the response was the same regardless of whether patients had CNS METs or not, you are going to get a fairly rapid response if you are going to get a response at all with entrectinib. The median time to the first progressive disease of death or the median time to the first progressive disease event or death was 2.8 months, but this only happened in 23 patients, which is still a re- relatively sizable percentage. The highest response rate for entrectinib was in the CD74 patients, the lowest in a fusion called SLC34A2. Uh, but even at the lowest response rates, the response rate was 57%, so still good. Among those who did respond, the 12-month duration of response rate was 63%. So at 12 months, almost two-thirds of patients are still responding. In terms of progression-free survival, the median PFS was 15.7 months, and the 12-month PFS was 55%, although half of these had progressed between the 12-month date and the cutoff of data. The overall survival remains immature. The median overall survival actually was not reached for entrectinib. The 12-month overall survival was 81%. So in terms of intracranial efficacy, this is, as Josh mentioned in his primer, the important or one of the most important things when you're treating ROS1 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. The overall response rate was 52%, and eight patients had an intracranial complete response, which is really good. In patients with measurable disease, because not all patients had measurable CNS mets, the overall response rate was 79.2%. And the 12-month progression-free survival was 44%. So we are seeing some data that backs up the assertion that entrectinib was engineered for improved CNS penetrance over crizotinib, and we are seeing some numbers that support that assertion. In terms of safety, Entrectinib was pretty well tolerated. So the most common side effects were uh, dysgeusia. Dysgeusia? I don't know how to actually say that. Dysgeusia, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. That's okay. I'm here to help. I'm going to leave this in. Dysgeusia. 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 It is is juicy, or it is a lack of juices, as Josh said. This is a juicy little skit. This is a very juicy little skit. 
but will definitely be left in. Um, <laughs> so present in 42.9% of patients, uh, dizziness in 34% and constipation in 4%. These are all grade one to two treatment related adverse events. Grade three adverse events, weight gain in 8%, ALT increase in 3% and diarrhea in 2.9%. Grade four treatment related adverse events. This is where it gets a little, a little bit concerning, again, remembering the small numbers. But hyperuricemia was present in two patients, triglyceridemia in one, but then you have a signal that could indicate a small but significant incidence of significant neurological or cardiological toxicity. So one patient had limbic encephalitis and one patient had myocarditis. Something that will become more apparent the more entrectinib we use in the community, but definitely something to keep in mind. So dyskusia is like an altered taste sensation. Xerostomia is the dry mouth thing. So in conclusion, because this I very much appreciate is a a bit of a confusing study, but it is, as mentioned, a symptom of a lack of phase, large phase two or phase three data. So the good. Entrectinib demonstrated a robust efficacy regardless of the presence or absence of CNS metastases. It appears to be walking the walk, not just talking the talk, that it can penetrate the blood-brain barrier effectively. The Responses tended to be durable, and this is evidenced by the fact that we haven't actually reached the overall survival, the median overall survival. And numerically, when you're talking about response rate, it was comparable to crizotinib. Entrectinib appeared well tolerated, but there is a signal, a low incidence of severe cardiological and neurological toxicity. As entrectinib becomes more commonly used, the impact of this will become clearer. So in Australia, entrectinib is approved by the PBS for the first-line treatment of ROS1 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Great. Brilliant. If we had left it there, there would be no debate. However, there are some limitations. This is a small study. Despite actually cobbling together three studies, the numbers still remain small. The majority of patients, as mentioned, were from the Star Trek II study. And when you're looking at an integrative analysis, it is potentially problematic if you're getting the majority of your data from one source. But the big thing is that there is no direct comparison to grisodinib. CNS efficacy assumptions, assumptions about superiority, about overall survival, these are all on the basis of cross-trial comparisons and preclinical data. So we know in theory that entrectinib should be better. We know that numerically in many ways entrectinib is better than grisodinib and it's gotten the approvals to back it. But How many times, Josh, have we seen something that should work in theory, that should be better than something else in theory, but when ultimately it's put to the test, it falls down? Way too often. Way, way too often is the correct answer. But look, if you are in the unique position, and many of our listeners may never have seen a patient with ROS1 mutant non-small cell lung cancer, I think I've seen a handful at most. But if you are in the position where you have a patient with treatment-naive ROS1 mutant non-small cell lung cancer, entrectinib is still probably your best bet, not least in Australia because you can't get it after the first line. So entrectinib in the first line, potentially followed by crizotinib in the second line. However, you do have to be wary of resistance mutations. And Josh, coming back to the KRAS question, there is a study that looked at resistance mutations in patients with ROS1, and KRAS G12C was a noted 
resistance mutation. Others include, included KRAS amplifications and FGFR3 or fibroblast growth factor receptor 3 mutations were also noted. So it might be beneficial that if you have a patient with ROS1 mutant non-small cell lung cancer that is progressing on entrectinib, maybe consider another biopsy, see if there's something else targetable like sodoracid. So that wraps it up, Josh, unless you have anything else to say. I think it was eloquently discussed, Michael. And I think, Josh, that pretty much wraps up our uh, two-part exploration of non-EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. We're by a blast. It was fun, you know, into the final frontier. Yeah, it wasn't exactly 20,000 leagues under the sea, probably 10,000 at most. But hey, we do what we can here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Josh, mm-hmm. do you want to tell the lovely ladies and gentlemen what we're going to be discussing next week? I would love to, Michael. We're going to be talking about testicular cancer. It is something that we have, again, had a special request, so thank you so much. But it is also something that we have probably omitted up to this point, a very, very common cancer that strikes young and frequently strikes hard. That's it. And good uh, case study, Michael, when we're looking at treatment that has potentially high cure rates in the young with potentially high consequences. So it's a high stakes episode coming up, but I think you'll love it. Well, we certainly hope you will. We'll see you then. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.